to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Evan Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Yaga Smash! <laughs> I haven't watched it I wonder it who yet. would be the first of us to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get it in there, I'm so sorry. I used my, I pulled the you, the you intro, <laughs> so I can slip that in there. Not watched it yet, planning to. Have you seen it yet, mm. Ed? I have. I have seen Borat's subsequent movie film and uh, is nice. Uh, I think is the, the only response to it. Um, yeah, I watched it uh, last night and it is better than I think any 14 year later Borat <laughs> sequel has any rights to be. It's got a lot of good jokes. I think it touches on some interesting material in like the idea of Borat being too famous a character for Sasha Baron Cohen to play anymore, mm. as you see very briefly, this, this this most of this these scenes are actually just in the trailer anyway. But you know when he first arrives in America to give a monkey to Mike Pence, he <laughs> is walking down the street and then people <laughs> people are just like running up to him going Borat 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 can I get an autograph autograph until he's being chased down the road by like a, a stream of people Hard Day's Night style and. I think it kind of moves away from that fairly quickly so we can actually get on to the, the bulk of the story, which is about his relationship with his teenage daughter, played by uh, Maria Bakalova, who is an absolute star in it. I think is like the real thing that elevates the movie. Um, like she's, she's so funny as Barrett's daughter. As, and seeing them together when they are dealing with normal people is some of the strongest stuff in the movie. Like There is a scene where she accidentally eats a plastic baby off of a cake because she's like devouring all the cake and then they go to a pastor to ask him for advice about getting an abortion oh my god and she's like saying you know i she has baby in her all this sort of like you know the kind of like the cultural misunderstandings of what they're saying and then borat being like oh yes i put it in her and all this sort of stuff which is like just really funny having a, a third person in the room to kind of like heighten Borat's misunderstandings. I think gives it a different energy to what you usually see uh, in his stuff. And I think there is a there is a, a genuine like sweetness to it as well in their relationship. And you never want to be the one to say this sort of thing, but there are some really strong <laughs> jokes about the Holocaust in it, <laughs> in the sense of like there are jokes that are very clever in the way in which you know it kind of like talks about the holocaust particularly in relation to kazakhstan and the kind of like the anti-semitism of borat's version of kazakhstan and i think like it does really highlight just what a uh, a fearless person <laughs> sasha baron cohen is in terms of the the stunts that he does in the movie including at least one that made like national news at the time it happened but people didn't realize it was him which is really funny to look back on <laughs> oh i can't wait yeah i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to give it a watch i mean just in terms of how kind of as soon as the rudy giuliani clip surfaced mm. just being like oh because i remember watching the trailer and being like okay can't really feel a lot of hilarity in this trailer but maybe they're saving it all for the film and i'm quite glad because it seems like they're saving it all for the the feature length you know and the power of 
a really good prank as a mm. as a political you know as protest prank as protest <laughs> like decent yeah. decent ones as well i am i am very intrigued yeah the Rudy Giuliani stuff is absolutely wild i mean in terms of the context of the movie it's actually fairly brief and minor and it ends up being just kind of like part of the genuinely sweet arc of Borat learning to understand his teenage daughter <laughs> but it involving like a uh you know one of the worst people in America being put into a compromising position which yeah. is just uh very funny and to see that particular thing kind of like injected into the presidential race in this way where you know it uh has kind of overshadowed like whatever rat fucking Giuliani was trying to do with the Hunter Biden laptop story and then Trump like tweeting about it and talking about like Hollywood has been trying to make fun of of Rudy Giuliani and then Sasha Baron Cohen playing like thanks for the publicity for my movie <laughs> like really strides on defecting it it's just been a really weird story and I think does point to like the like you say the underlying power of a good prank is like particularly if it's of someone that you just fundamentally dislike there is a lot of power to like a prank just like going off so well in that regard and just being so like universally aware of you know like so many people now know about the Borat movie because of this thing happening mm. and again um, people saying like oh he's not actually about to jerk off and blah 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 but if you watch mm-hmm. like the clip even just the full clip that was um, lifted and put on Twitter he's still touching her lower back an awful lot when it's entirely unnecessary yeah there's like everything about it is like this is just really inappropriate you know he's not he's not Jeffrey Tube in it but like it's definitely Tube in it not not <laughs> Not a great look. I'd forgotten that happened this week. That feels like something that happened a million fucking years ago. Right, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, 2020 is a hell of a decade, Ed. Mm, yeah. There was a clip. Well, not a clip. There was a, a screenshot that people were circulating around of that, that Zoom call where obviously you didn't see anything too bad, but um, like there was a shot of Jeffrey Tubman and he appeared to be shirtless and all I could think of was he looked like a Goron from The Legend of Zelda games. Like he was getting ready to sell Link a sword. Very, very distinct body type. Oh, in it. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I guess that's our, our first news story. Uh, Borat sequels out, and it has weirdly had uh, this like destabilizing effect on, but you know, not in a huge way, uh, but on the uh, presidential campaign. Uh, other kind of news of uh, pop culture and politics colliding this week was that uh, AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez did a Twitch stream this week of the game Among Us, which uh, I, along with nearly 500,000 other people, watched on the night that it happened. I think the third highest number of people who have ever concurrently watched something on Twitch. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, that's a very fun game for people who don't know what um, Among Us is. It's a team party game where you have like up to I don't even know what the other is like up to like 10 or 11 people you're going around this spaceship and most of the people just have to try and complete tasks to win the game but amongst them is a traitor whose job it is to sabotage what they're doing and to eventually kill everyone and so it's a very fun game particularly to watch people stream as, as people are trying to figure out who it is that is the traitor and eventually like vote them off by essentially kicking them out the airlock and it can be very very funny watching people just like turn on each other and begin to suspect people for 
no good reason. <laughs> and it was very funny watching the stream and seeing like how I think in the first game AOC turned out to be the traitor and everyone else on the call being very nervous about uh, kicking <laughs> AOC out of the airlock, um, which is very funny to see. Uh, and also there's been lots of clips circulating online of H-Bomber guy who was on the stream towards the end of it uh, being the traitor and killing AOC's character and her being just horrified at his betrayal. Uh, after all they've been through together <laughs> in terms of their their live streams so yeah it was very fun and i think a very interesting experiment in you know a politician using new media to connect with uh audiences the only thing i think that is kind of comparable to this was for a while the washington post had a series where uh, Dave Weigel, who's one of their great political reporters and a very fun follow on Twitter, would play video games with people running for president and get them to kind of like talk about their policies whilst also kind of having them in that weird space where you're playing a game and you're really engaged with it. And there's a very funny one where he was playing uh, Pac-Man Ultimate Championship with Cory Booker. Uh, but like that felt a little more awkward than this, whereas this felt like a very natural combination of AOC who's someone who really understands how to be on screen and really knows how to kind of keep an audience engaged and a game that is very good for you know what she was trying to do which is to encourage people to vote like every time it came time for people to be voted out they would be saying like uh yeah now we've got to vote uh, you know and I'm voting early and all this sort of stuff because they were trying to uh draw attention particularly to the fact that in New York State you know there's this whole thing where Biden and Harris are on the Democratic Party line, but they're also on the Working Family Party's line. And she was specifically trying to promote people voting on the Working Family line so that um, that party will able to have ballot access in the future because there have been some rule changes that made it, makes it harder for them to stay on the ballot if they don't get enough votes. And it's kind of this whole Democratic establishment thing trying to crush them at a point where they're very powerful. But yeah, so like it's, it's, it's really interesting seeing this kind of just this thing that on one surface is just like, oh, this is really fun watching like engaging people play a fun game. But no, no one thinking this could have like real significant consequences for like politics in New York State for the next couple of years. Mm. And it's interesting that point where you say about um, AOC and new media, because it's like she has the legitimacy of being to, of being able to say how do you do fellow kids mm-hmm. like yeah. she's not doing something that she's unfamiliar with or being taught to do like she is she just gets it and uses it really deftly mm. yeah absolutely and like you know she has often talked about being really into games as well so you know so there yeah. is an authenticity to her that I think absolutely wouldn't feel real coming from a lot of the politicians Mm, mm -hmm, for sure in other news and this kind of continues some of our discussion from last week where we're talking about like what ben whitney's up to (laughs) Uh, he he announced another movie this week uh the man cannot be stopped uh it was announced that he is signed on to direct the sequel to the meg the giant shark movie that came out a couple of years ago and was a massive global hit particularly uh, for Jason Statham not much else has been confirmed in terms of whether or not Statham's involved or what the story would be I guess another shark shows up I guess would be the the likeliest outcome but it's I think very interesting because there was such a uh, I think Ben Wheatley I mean you and I are both like fans of his work and I know like we, we talk about how much we just like the fact that he does seem to 
gravitate to lots of movies at different budget levels and different styles and like really seems to enjoy the chance to kind of like do different things but i think he's a little divisive in terms of like people online about you know the quality of his movies whether or not they think his genre hopping budget hopping kind of approach to, to filmmaking results in anything particularly worthwhile and this one seemed like the the decision that would flummox everyone like his detractors would be like he's signing up for this like crash grab sequel thing to a movie that you know was very successful but like not that many people seem to like and his fans being like yeah that's a puzzler <laughs> <laughs> i think he just uh, i think he just wants to have fun and i think mm-hmm. kind of moving into franchises and intellectual properties that aren't his and mm-hmm. his uh, wife amy jump i think they're often not really seen as a filmmaking duo but i absolutely believe that they are in the same way that karen kasama and her husband and his writing partner are very much mm. like a really powerful combination and i think kind of moving into tomb raider obviously and then the meg i think he just kind of wants to have fun and i remember hearing about ben wheatley back in the day when he sort of first started um making films and like with rook films the production company and sort of making down terrace but also being mm. like look Amy and I have like five or six scripts. Which one do you want to go with next? So they had, yeah. it was never a case of, I must make this film now. Like I think um, Free Fire was something he wrote years ago or Amy wrote years ago. And I think, you know, I, I really admire that kind of, it's simultaneously attachment and detachment, right? Like I could make any mm. of these six films and I would be happy with making any one of them right now. And I think he just is grafting and constantly has something on the go. And I find him really fascinating for that because I think he's just, it's not like some people, (laughs) Ryan Murphy, (laughs) who just sort of seem to, I can't think of a a better word than this, Ed, so apologies, but who just spaff out content (laughs) at a rate that is, well, I just think about a jam sketch from back in the day called The Gush, I don't think it's good for anyone, but I think this kind of running, sort of giving everything as good as you've got, whichever sort of comes to fruition at the time. And I think it's Hmm. interesting that Ben Wheatley is kind of being headhunted now because he hadn't been, as far as I'm aware, for a long time. He's kind of made his own stuff and is now like, oh, yeah, I mean, why not direct a couple of sequels now? Like, I'm like, mm. but four for you, Ben Wheatley. Go Ben Wheatley. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting calculus for his career, I guess. If you look at what a lot of other people, like youngish directors, are doing in Hollywood, like the fact that he doesn't seem to have any interest in going into the Marvel factory. Yeah. Like that he instead is like, okay, if I'm going to make a big budget Hollywood movie. I'm gonna make sequels to movies that people didn't have particularly high opinions of. I I know that the um the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider has like lots of people who like really dig it, but like for the most part that movie wasn't a particularly strong success uh, in terms of financially and think critically it was a little bit kind of middling. So it kind of feels like the perfect ground to jump into if you think well, I could do the best that I can with this. Maybe I can bring something to it that really kind of gets people involved and make a good film out of not particularly promising material if it fails it probably doesn't reflect badly on me like 
if you sign up to direct a Marvel movie and then the Marvel movie like doesn't do particularly well, then that's probably a lot more damaging because in terms of like whether or not Disney will keep hiring you to make stuff. Whereas, you know, I feel like the risk reward kind of factor for signing on to Tomb Raider 2 and the Meg is probably a lot more favorable for, for him, particularly as someone who, you know, is used to just like making super low budget films anyway. Like he's always got that that you can go back to. So experimenting with these bigger budget movies and thinking okay if i turn this into a big movie that makes a lot of money then that open doors for me if it doesn't you know i've still got all this other stuff i can do is, is probably somewhat kind of guiding his thinking in addition to just thinking man it'd be really funny to make a movie with a big fucking shark <laughs> snap snap and our final bit of news this week is one of those news stories that you kind of feel should have already happened, which is that Tim Burton is in talks to try and make a live-action Adams Family TV show, which, again, feels like something that should have happened already. Like, the Adams Family aesthetic is so close to what Tim Burton has always done anyway, and I, I'm probably not alone in as a child, assuming that he directed the two live-action yeah. uh Adam's Family movies from the 90s. Uh, obviously, you know, that was uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. He did a great job with those. But he'd like it, it, it's one of those things where you think, this feels like something that should have happened already in the same way that I think a lot of Tim Burton's projects in recent years have kind of had that feeling to them where you, 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 know, you see the trailer for his Alice in Wonderland. You go, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought of Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland <laughs> movie would look yeah. like. And this kind of has the same feeling to me and, and kind of also reminds me a little bit of the uh, Monsters reboot that uh, Brian Fuller was behind like 10 years ago at this point, which was like, you know, only they only did a pilot of it and they were uh, called Mockingbird Lane, I believe, and it was pretty fun. But it was one of those things where you think, I don't know how much kind of like gas there is in this idea for it to kind of go along, considering how far removed from popular consciousness the Adams Family would seem to be but then again like the Adams Family CGI movie that came out a couple of years ago was a pretty big hit and I remember after it came out I was in a shop somewhere and I heard like a little uh, a pair of like five-year-olds kind of bothering their mum by singing the Adams Family theme songs <laughs> which is, is lovely because it made me think oh man every 30 years it comes around and kids just really fucking dig the Adams Family again so may maybe it is the, the right time for it although Again, there's that sense of like, is there is there room for two concurrent versions of the Adams family to exist side by side? I'm I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, I mean, we've had plenty of Spider Man. Mm, that's true, haven't we? So I don't know. Maybe I mean I love the Adams family, but I think it's just the casting has to be key, particularly if you're doing yeah. live action, right? Like. And I remember seeing something that a fantastic illustrator on Instagram had created, which, and I've completely forgotten the illustrator, because that's me, of course, that's what I do. And I sent it to you, Ed, um, I think, because it was on Twitter. And it was... Mm. Um, I'll Oscar see if I can I find it. Thank you. It was Oscar Isaac and Ruth Negger. And I just thought, mm. oh, yeah, I'd love Morticia as Ruth Negger. Yes, please. Because I think so much of what the Adams Family is about is being... In that, in that similar sense to The Simpsons, the purest American family you could actually hope for, yet, mm. yet they are still seen as outsiders. But they adore yeah. each other. And they don't... They have absolutely zero comprehension of the fact that they're different because they just feel like they're every other family. 
Um, mm. And I love that they're not dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're actually incredibly forthcoming. And I love how Gomez is like, but is just so unabashedly adoring of his wife and his children and is sort of capital R romantic all the time. And yes, <laughs> Debbie pastels I just oh yeah and it needs the humor and I guess it's because you know those Barry Somerville films um that's my Adams family you know Mm. so I'm as much as I'm but it's more of a sickly intrigue rather than a oh goody it's coming round again you know yeah Uh, and that artist was Romy Jones at Romina Jones on Twitter if anyone wants to check out that picture because it is great and like you say beautiful job it's such a good choice as well because the other one that i've seen as a suggestion for morticia going around for ages and ages at this point was eva green and which would also be a good choice and also is one of those ones where you think well if tim burns doing it then seems like she'd probably be in the running if she wants to i don't know do a prestige tv version of the adams family if that's kind of the direction that they're going but yeah you're you're right i think the there's so much i think that can go wrong with the adams family that does kind of make this trepidatious, even if, you know, like, Tim Burton seems like a natural fit for it. it Maybe even too natural a fit to him, the case where he would just phone it in. But, which I think has been a problem with a lot of his recent movies, where pretty much, like, I don't know, the last time, it kind of felt like he went a little bit outside of his comfort zone. It'd be something like Big Eyes, where he was, you know, making a biopic of of a real person, but doing it in his style, so it kind of felt a little bit beyond what he kind of like usually kind of like churns out at this point let's just get a ben wheatley on it he's not busy that's true yeah he can he could knock it out this is unrelated but um i've been on a bit of a, a spike lee bent this week after watching american uh, utopia mm. and i rewatched the right thing which obviously masterpiece like right one of the, probably one of one of the best movies of my lifetime and just today i've rewatched mo better blues which i haven't seen in ages and that's also a movie that's absolutely fantastic but uh, i was just like idly decided to look at his imdb page and be like you know you know i'm sure there's like a handful of his features i haven't seen and i'm sure there's some tv stuff and looking at his credits it's like fuck that guy works a lot he's like got 94 credits on there and even just in recent years where he like directed every episode of that she's got a habit tv series for netflix at the same time that he was also doing like black Klansman and a rodney king um live stage show that he recorded and also directed all of the cutscenes for one of the nba 2k games <laughs> it's like it's just an absolutely incredibly strange career and uh made, made me love him even more just thinking like he's just someone who you know, really seizes every opportunity and makes every opportunity for himself, which uh, is incredibly admirable in an industry that can be uh, very safe, as evidenced by the fact that they want Tim Burton to make an Adam's Family TV show. So we'll go on to our main topic this week, uh, which was uh, people taking a big risk and it not paying off. It was (laughs) the the news this week that Quibi, the incredibly short lived and ill conceived streaming service for your phone <laughs> it's hard to kind of describe exactly what quibi is uh, you just have to see it for yourself and still then you have no idea uh, it is it is shuttering you know like this uh, a service launched early this year i think i think it launched in about april or, or march and 
even before it debuted, I think everyone looked at it and said, this seems like a disaster. I don't know why anyone <laughs> would need this sort of thing. And uh, Danny Bowes on, on Twitter kind of made the point that he felt quite happy about it failing because he had looked at it and said, this seems like a complete failure. And usually when he thinks that, um, the thing he thinks is a failure turns out to be like the iPhone or something. So it's nice to kind of have your uh, conceptions of what can succeed in the world uh, confirmed. But yeah, it, 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 it was this idea for an app on your phone that would provide you with short form content that you would pay $8 a month for that you would be able to watch horizontally vertically and was pretty much designed for people's commutes so like the 10 minutes that you're on the train or whatever so you could watch like a 10 minute episode of an Anna Kendrick sitcom or something and you know launched with all this fanfare it had all these big names uh, associated with it and all of these kind of like high concept shows which seemed like shows that may have been pitched to other networks and that Quibi just like bought up at an exorbitant price based on the fact that they had like a billion dollars in funding that they seemed to spend on very little of any value and yeah it was just like a complete flop hardly anyone used it like they hardly seemed to advertise it much past the launch and pretty much as soon as it launched people seemed to be writing its obituary and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was one of the, the co-founders of it, along with uh, Meg Whitman, who was one of the CEO, the CEO of Hewlett-Packard for, for some time, he kind of has blamed it a lot on the pandemic because, again, like so much of the ideal user base of this would be people commuting and things like that, and so many people just aren't commuting now, so obviously the, the, the user base isn't there. But I think it's fair to say that Quibi, just as a concept, as an idea was just inherently not something the world needed and whether or not a pandemic hit uh, is, is kind of immaterial maybe it sped up its demise by like six months or something but when you look at like what they're offering and the kind of service it was it's hard to look at it and say oh yeah this was a thing that you know just had bad luck as opposed to this was just a bad idea yeah i think it was josh gondelman who did a a series of quite brilliant tweets saying, you know, Quibi basically looked at web series that already existed and decided to invent it and charge mm. people for it. Um, yeah. And I think really Quibi is so much like its infamous show. Well, it was one episode of the wider Sam Raimi anthology, but The Woman with the mm. Golden Arm where yeah. it's like, well, it's incredibly expensive and killing you, <laughs> and yet you can't bear to part with it. I just... Because that's all we got, really. Like, um, by we, I mean my position in this cursed, uh, scepted isle <laughs> within mm -hmm. which I live. And all we really got was, you know, all of the mad stuff that, that found yeah. its way onto Twitter. And it was just, yeah, I mean, uh, Katzenberg sort of uh, softened on his position and Whitman and, and, and the rest of them have sort of been saying, oh, no, it is our fault now. And he mm. said something about like, oh, it was a quippy answer. I Q-U-I-P-P-Y. -P -P and I wasn't sure whether he was trying, whether people thought he was saying a quippy answer. In that, <laughs> in that you try and it just doesn't, doesn't quite land. <laughs> it's just... 
Oh, and there is a there's a fantastic article um, on The Verge by Julia Alexander, which gives eleven reasons uh, why it crashed and burned in less than a year. And uh, mm-hmm. the byline being the streamer that was doomed to fail before it launched has died, <laughs> which I think feels <laughs> like almost feels like a, a, an onion headline, because it was it really felt like sort of fire festival. Apart from mm. everyone knew it wasn't going to work because, like you yeah. said, it wasn't something anyone wanted. All of the features that it put forward, being like you can watch it, like you know, portrait or landscape. <laughs> well, I, I can with other stuff, really. And also, that feature didn't really work because I remember <laughs> when it Brilliant. launched. I think Emily Vanderworth watched all of the like launch shows for Vox, and I think there was a, a, a piece. I think it was in her article, which had like screenshots from the most dangerous game the adaptation of the most game dangerous games that they have in it starring uh, christoph waltz and liam hemsworth i think mm-hmm. and it was it, it was very interesting just showing the, the point that like if you watch the import in landscape landscape mode everything's very clear and you could kind of see like oh you know liam hemsworth walks into the room and uh, christoph waltz is is there and then you kind of like they stop and turn to each other but then when you watch it in portrait mode <laughs> It was just Christoph Waltz and Liam Hemsworth wasn't visible, so it was clear that the shows had not been shot with the intention of like people being able to watch it in landscape or portrait. It was clear that there had been no real effort done to make this feature like actually something that people you know kind of made central to the way they were making their shows for the format, which is probably an oversight. And also, just that like sheer sort of hope that just just the the vast range of big names that were attached and yet like mm-hmm. all of the shows were awful which is strange because i remember yeah. seeing clips and nish kumar doing his absolute best to promote hello america which mm-hmm. as far as i can tell is like the mash report in like but hello america <laughs> we are we are we yeah. are telling you um from a sort of british perspective and again, but that's like, well, that's not a Quibi original, is it? Like, oh, mm. Quibi original, even just saying that sort of strikes fear into my heart. Because it just seems like all of the, it seemed like they kept making the same absolutely batshit show over and over again. Mm. And some things look quite interesting. I think Rashida Jones had a show, I think she was sort of exec producing, and it, lots of people were just like sort of rushing to this platform. And, but nothing really seemed to properly land and there's a there's a um a sketch which i thought was brilliant entitled how it feels dating during the pandemic and Mm. it's it's very funny but the bit that really got me is right at the end he's just standing looking at a giant billboard for quibi and then just like zooms in on quibi i was Mm. like oh fuck yeah quibi is 2020 <laughs> One of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier about, like um, the the woman with the golden arm or uh, uh, thing going viral. One of the things that I thought was really funny in that Verge article was it pointed out, and that I'd forgotten this, but like in the um, early days of the web of the, of the app, you couldn't take video or screenshots of it. Like you were prevented from doing so, and so. What was really funny about when that clip went viral is it was someone using a phone to film the screen of another phone oh to kind of God. capture this 
like completely like wild and silly thing from from this particular episode of that anthology series and that in turn reminded me of one of the funniest like quibby things which is where the like social media account for it was posting descriptions of shows but without any images because clearly they couldn't take images to kind of like try and sell the show so it was just this like stream of shows be like you know kevin hart and john travolta in die hart you know <laughs> and all this sort of stuff, which is like describing what the shows were and it it was like this just such an absurd thing and it just really underlined how poorly the people behind quibi understood how the world works in terms of like trying to promote these shows and how much as well that it seemed to fall upon the famous people to get the word out there like you know um chrissy teigen had a show on it where she was like a judge resolving people's banal problems of which made, that's, that's judge john hodgman <laughs> that's that's a show that already exists but you just happen to put chrissy teigen in it uh, also um uh, uh, ramesh Reganathan, I think he also has that show basically in the UK as well. So it's like some of the formats felt fairly warmed over. Um, but like, unless she was promoting it, like there wasn't anything out in the world telling you, oh, by the way, Chrissy Teigen has a show on this app. And I think the moment for me that really crystallized, oh, yeah, Quibi's not long for this world was uh, Ron Funches was on, he had a show and he had a, he was hosting a quiz show. And he went on the Giant Beast cast, the um, one of the, the the shows produced by Giant Bomb, and you know he did this two and a half hour podcast or whatever where they talk about video games and stuff. And at the end, when he was invited to kind of like talk about his Quibi show, he was very much kind of like, ah, you know, you can watch it if you want. Maybe we'll make more. But he didn't seem like overly enthused about it. He seemed mainly to be thinking, I've made my money already off of this thing, and it's pro. And I think that seemed to be the attitude that a lot of people seem to have with it, which is like, you know, we're getting paid for doing this stuff, but uh, no no one's doing it for the art, which uh, was probably reflected in a lot of the quality. Mm. Yeah, it's just, I'm sorry, just often I can't find the words for it. <laughs> because it feels like a joke. Like, not only do the shows themselves all feel like fake shows in, like, 30 Rock, mm-hmm. you know, it's all sort of, I'm like, where's the rural juror? Yeah. Like, it, it feels like not far off that at all. <laughs> but it's also, it's amazing because, like, you know, if we're talking medium is the message, then the whole medium is a, is a joke. Mm. Like, you know, yeah. we, we already have TikTok. We have YouTube. Yes. Yeah, like, like I, I remember there was, um, I think it was a quote from Meg Whitman where she said, oh, you know, we're not competing, we're not competing with Netflix. And that's obviously true. But, um, like, they also didn't seem to acknowledge that TikTok and YouTube are a thing. And also it's a thing that does exactly what they're trying to do, but way, way better. And for free. Yeah. Like, if you if you want short form content to watch on your bus ride to work or whatever then you know just fire up youtube and there's like billions of things you could watch (laughs) that don't cost you anything other than you know the cost of your data or whatever or you know like 
go on Twitter and flip through and there'll be some viral tick that you can watch and just be like, ah, oh, this, this is funny. Okay, now I'm, I get off the bus. Um, but also the, the, the very idea of being like, we're there just to fill the kind of like quiet moments in your life where you don't have a screen in front of you. Mm. It's just kind of, there's something weirdly dystopian about it. It's like, yeah, we have to keep you glued to see content at every moment. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know, some t- sometimes you can just want to listen to music on the bus or you want to crack open a book or something. Like you don't want to have, you don't want to watch a 10 minute episode of, of something that is completely inconsequential. Those little quiet moments of life can be quite nice. And the cost you were saying there, Ed, I didn't realise until I read that article in The Verge <laughs> that it was $5 and you still got ads. You had to pay yeah, $8, $8 without. without. What? what? Who, who is paying for something that also has ads? That's nuts. And I think it also points to, you know, we, we've talked in the past about, you know, streaming services just more generally and how like the big thing that a lot of streaming services kind of like lead with is their originals and Quibi was like the first one I could think of where it was literally all originals it wasn't like they had like a big back catalogue of stuff that you would also only be able to get there in the way that you know like Peacock the NBC streaming app you know their big selling point they have some originals but for the most part you know the reason you would get that is you want to watch The Office or whatever and like I feel like that really underpins like a major misunderstanding about why Netflix took off like Netflix if Netflix had launched and it was like hey we just have Lily Hammer with yeah. Steve Van Sant this is our original stuff and we don't have anything else no one would be talking about Netflix as a streaming service now they'd still be just sending out DVDs in the mail right. like the reason why they were such a value and remain you know kind of a valuable thing for a lot of people is because they have lots of old stuff that people want to watch. <laughs> like, the originals are a nice kind of thing on the side of it, and they're obviously what have allowed it to kind of like grow and become more enforced in other ways. But at the core for a lot of these streaming services, it's the access to um, a big archive. That is really what gives them their value. And that's what you see also with, like, you know, HBO Max, like the big, the big thing there, and then help them, them having friends, because obviously friends are part of the Warner Brothers thing. And, yeah, yeah just, just the fact that Quibi, like, launches with, here's a bunch of shows that uh, are entirely new and also aren't particularly good and that we don't have, like, great incentive for you to check out was probably pretty... That was probably a bad choice. Mm. And it's not like they had, like, a great alternative to that because if your entire model is, like, you know, we're going to show you these 10-minute, you know, Quibbies as they, they wanted people to start calling it, and I think uh, now Quibi is just going to become... A synonym for a boondoggle in <laughs> in the kind of uh, like the cloud atlas far future things where all movies are referred to as Disney's. I think all disasters oh. will just be referred to as Quibi's. <laughs> like, there's not like a great selection of stuff that you could kind of put on there. Like, I don't know, just gonna buy up the Chaplin back catalogue or something and just like start putting those on or showing three Stooges shorts. Like, there's not like a great wealth of stuff that you could kind of pull together for that for that ten minute format other than like the only thing I think they could have done that might have worked a little better is if they just kind of went to instead of blowing all of their money on, you know, celebrities, you know, just saying, hey, you know, come and make shows for this thing and then being like yeah sure why not would have been as, as a lot of people i think suggested at the time it's like 
just go to TikTok, look for who the big creators are and say, hey, do you want to make a thing for 10 minutes? And like, you know, we'll give you a bunch of money and you can kind of like do it and then make that the attractive thing or go to YouTubers and try and get them to do it. Because I feel like there's probably a wealth of talent there who would have really, you know, been chomping at the bit to make something really good at a level they hadn't necessarily had the opportunity to do before and also to kind of like maybe get on the ground floor of something. Chomping at the quick bit. Like, and, and also, like, you look at the viewing figures and for, like, TikTok and YouTube, and it's global. Yeah. It's insane. Like, yes, Chrissy um, Tigan has a whole bunch of Twitter followers, but it just felt like everyone was quite, I mean, quite old. Can I say that, Ned? For this kind mm. of thing. Like, it, it didn't feel like a big span of people and creators yeah. at all. And surely, like, if you want you want those viewers who are watching TikTok who are like, oh, well, I like TikTok and I like YouTube and Quibi has something else. Like maybe it's giving, you know, self-starting yeah. creators, you know, even though the home studios that people have are amazing, it's like, well, let's give them access to huge sets and a crew and see what they can do. Mm. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and I think you're you're kind of seeing some YouTubers go that route in their own right. Like, you know, I, I know lots of people that we're, fans of like Lindsay Ellis and H Bomber Guy and Patrick Willems, like they have recently launched a service that I completely forget the name of now, but which is like basically a platform for their stuff where they like produce like premium stuff that isn't gonna go on YouTube, which allows them to kind of like try and experiment with different things that they want to try and do. And like you could look at that and think, yeah, that's that's something that Quibi could have been. Like they could have gone to people who are big on YouTube, who have the talent and the drive, and who but who are maybe surviving off of their Patreon money and things like that. Who, if you then say, "Hey, we're going to give you like a hundred thousand dollars to go and make something," they'd be like, "Great!" Right? Why give it to the celebrities? We can. We all remember Imagine. <laughs> That's what happens when you give this to celebrities. No, mm. no. Didn't consent. Didn't consent. And neither did Quibi. Another another wonderful euphemism for something being a great disaster. It didn't transcend. Uh, so we'll say quibye to quibby and <laughs> move on to shot reverse shot recommendations, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? So I'm a little bit behind in getting on this particular hype train, but bait. Oh my word, Ed, I finally mm. watched it. The Mark Jenkins film. I think came out was it towards the end of last year um yeah and i've never seen anything quite like it it's totally remarkable in that it's all filmed on 30s film stock every bit of sound is adr'd afterwards so there's this really beautiful heritage old-timey feel to it but it all of the issues within it are like utterly contemporary the acting is incredible just think about the foley artists that it employed like it's an absolutely stunning job it's very funny in places it's dark and strange and reminded me of i feel a bit shitty sort of comparing it to things because it's such a unique piece of work and it almost seems mm. reductive but very welcome shades of uh, alan renee and uh, german expressionism and i just think it's one of the best sort of art house films i've seen in a long time and i'm really glad i saw the lighthouse first <laughs> <laughs> not the other way around um, so Bait is available to rent on the BFI player and I heartily recommend that you do cool I have uh, two recommendations one that is very conditional which is uh, Tim Heidecker's stand-up special An Evening with Tim Heidecker which you can watch on YouTube it's conditional because 
if you don't dig what Tim Heidegger does, mm. it's probably um, it's probably not going to be a great uh, hour of your life. But basically, it's a kind of like a brutal dissection of bad stand-up where he goes on stage and deliberately bombs quite badly. Oh, <laughs> um, gimme. Gimme, it's gimme, very, gimme. It's very, it's very funny if you've seen bad stand-up. Just excruciating. <laughs> but it's very, very funny. Like, within the first couple of minutes of just how badly things go for him, it, it's it's really, really good. And uh, I highly recommend it. He does a lot of great stand-up faces in it, you know, where uh, in place of a punchline, he pours an expression. So that's an evening with Tim Heidecker, which, uh, yes, I highly recommend. But, uh, yeah, it's it's the sort of thing where if you don't kind of jive with what he does, usually uh, it's probably not going to be a, a great time. And the other thing, uh, which kind of ties into to what you're saying about bait, is the video game Return of the Obradin, which uh, I've been playing over the last couple of days. It came out last year, but uh, it recently was on sale to... Uh, celebrating its anniversary so i picked it up and i've been really loving it it's from lucas pope who previously made the game papers please where you play a uh, guard at a border of a fictional soviet country and you have to kind of decide who gets to go into the country this also has a similarly uh, unlikely premise for a game which you play an insurance adjuster who is sent to this ship called the Obradin, which had disappeared on its voyage and has now shown up with no crew on board and you go around you have this notebook in which you have to like note down details of people's names and how they died and you have a magic uh, watch which allows you to go back in time to the point where someone died and to see what killed them and so the whole game is this mystery where you're going through the story in kind of a non-linear fashion where you uncover what happened to all the people on the ship and then you have to deduce who all of the various people are and their relationships to each other in order to kind of create a complete manifest saying okay this is what happened on the ship and this is what it happened to and uh, it's incredibly stylish it's this like really stark black and white image that looks kind of like a, a pulp comic book from like the 30s it's very atmospheric in terms of its its music and you know the way in which you get to do the way in which you kind of get to go through these frozen tableaus of horrible things happening uh, is just like really well implemented and it's it's like papers please it has this wonderful thing where on paper you describe it you know and it sounds like something that would be completely arch and uh you know kind of impenetrable but as you play it, it's so intuitive and it's so gratifying every time the game confirms that you've conf- you've got the right details about someone that it is super compelling uh, so if people haven't checked it out yet then please do i think it's one of the most kind of like singular games i've played in ages and it's on like everything um I've, I've been playing it on the switch and it works really well there so if you have a switch it's there but also it's on pc and playstation xbox it's on everything if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me